but we're talking about why we do what we do <clears throat> and some of the things we can laugh about. Some of it can be practical. What I want to do is just continue where we were and pick up, and I want to explain this today, and I wish everybody were here uh, so we could make sure that we're all on the same page, but we'll pick up and review a little bit. I want to talk about today probably the critical area of why we do what we do is what am I supposed to do? What is the staff supposed to do? What is the expectations? <clears throat> because let's be frank about it. Um, the, the, a lot of the difficulties we have with people relationships, a lot of difficulties we have with employment and jobs is, does it meet our expectations? Churches is the same thing. Does it meet our expectations? And sometimes do we have to stop and ask, are our expectations what are supposed to be legitimate expectations? So we want to talk about it, but let's set up and make sure we're all on the same page. Most of you uh, who are here uh, have, have, could do this first part of the lesson because of your background, your, your knowledge. But we're talking about a church being organized, born-again believers who are united for God's business. A couple of weeks ago when we had service, we talked about why we chose the name Baptist. And we mentioned that we had by just using this uh, form of wording that we mentioned. This is some of our basic Bible beliefs and polity was with all these variety of different topics that you're very familiar with. What we want to do is just remind ourselves our primary duty. What is our primary job to do? Now this, this is so important because we will be inundated with requests of will we do this, will we do this, will we do this, and we have to always evaluate and go back to what is our primary job, and does it fit into our primary job, and then with that our philosophy. And so we go back and we say our primary job is very simple. Our primary job for all of us on an individual level as well as a corporate level is to bring glory to God for His pleasure that we we were created, do all to the glory of God. We have multiple passages that talk about us being uh, predestinated to be conformed to the image of Christ. Why? So that we would, uh, we would be to the praise of his glory in Ephesians, that we should be to the praise of his glory again, unto him be glory in the church. And again, time and again, we have that whole idea that this is our basic purpose of life, is fulfilling what God has created us for, that we are living to a point that he has called us to walk worthy so that the name of Christ may be glorified. So when we stop and say, okay, what is our main objective as believers? It is, it is an objective is to win the world to Christ, but bigger and more broader is we're to bring glory to God. Winning souls is one way of doing that. And so that, that brings us to that theme that says, okay, why do we do what we do? And we mentioned this on a personal level that for you and I, and even as a church, some of the ways that we bring God glory is our lifestyle, our forgiveness, our activities, our events, and what we're doing in following His commands. All that is involved in doing that. And so our basic job, and I'm going to mention this again in the morning service, is taking the acrostic W-I-F-E, since we're the bride of Christ, and our basic job is to do these four things to bring glory to God. Worship, instruction, fellowship, and evangelism. In the morning service right now, we're going to talk today about worship and some aspects of that, and uh, we'll get into those other topics. But in the New Testament era, how did they go about fulfilling the glorifying God by acting like the wife is supposed to act. And so thinking about it and walking through it, we have to say, okay, what helped them to do that was organization. We're an organism. We're born-again believers. We're united with Christ. But we're not just thrown together, okay, and let's just get together. And this, this did happen in New Testament era. People just got together and everybody said, we'll just do whatever we want to do in their worship service. And Paul writes 
three chapters in 1 Corinthians saying you can't do that. There has to be some structure. There has to be some planning. There has to be some organization, even in the worship. So do you remember what I'm talking about? Where he said in 1 Corinthians 14, if you have somebody who comes in and wants to share a message, and he claims that he is a spokesman of God, you have to make sure that if he's claiming to even have the gift of tongues, which was a very special gift, that you find out ahead of time, is there an interpreter? And even if you do that, how many at the most were supposed to speak? Three three at the most, okay, and they were supposed to not speak all at the same time. Okay, and so there was, there was organization, even in planning a service, where sometimes I'll get rebuffed and rebuked, you know, that you know, we should be more spontaneous in services, and we should just, whatever happens in a service happens. But 1 Corinthians 14 indicates that we should plan, okay? We should have some type of organization, even in coming, because God is not the author of confusion, okay? And things need to be done decently in order. So when we talk about organization, let's just talk about this one topic that a lot of people don't like to talk about, a lot of born-again Christians even. They'll, uh, they'll, they'll kind of, you know, get their dander up when we say, you know what the Bible does, it does indicate the idea of membership into an organization. And I hear a lot of responses, you'll never find the term membership in the, in the New Testament. And that's correct, is it not? You will never find the word church membership in the New Testament. You never find the word trinity in the Bible. You never find the word rapture in the Bible. But do you believe in those, in those events? Okay. And so we look and say, okay, where in the New Testament is there any indication or implication that there was a, such a thing as a church membership? And, and I am really more and more convinced as time goes by that this is essential, this idea of membership for the protection of the church. And you'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a few minutes and it'll make more sense. But if there wasn't such a thing as membership in the New Testament, then the question has to be where he says in Acts chapter 2, and then there was 3,000 who gladly received his word and they were added unto the, unto the church. Well, if, they were, if there's no type of organization and uh, this is a defined group and they are united together, then who are these people added to? If there's no type of concern about keeping track of what's going on and, and to degrees numbers, okay? then why did they do it in the New Testament? Why were they keeping track of this, these individuals? When it talks about the widows among you, who's the among you that we're supposed to take care of? Every widow that's on the street? We know that's not true. Because he says in Acts 6, you know, we have to look out for the widows among you. So there had to be some type of an idea. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he talks about a roster being kept. That those ladies who are on that roster... Uh, the widows in particular. And so the idea that just in, the implications seem really clear that when he says, choose out from among you, there was a select idea in everybody's mind. It was a specified group of individuals who you call it whatever you like to call it, but they were identified as belonging to that body that they were the ones that were going to make that decision to choose and, and uh, select different individuals from that group. The, the, biggest, <clears throat> the biggest thought in my mind when it comes to church membership is, if there isn't such a thing, then what do we do when we do exercise church recovery, church discipline? When we say, well, put out from among you. If there isn't some type of an, a recognized body and membership, then what are you putting the person out of? Are you putting them out of Christianity generally? Well, we know they can't lose their salvation. 
So what do you put them out of? Do you put them out of ever talking to them? Do we consider them as dead? Um, what's the term that they use in some of the, like the Amish? The shunning, thank you. Do we shun the person? We know that's not biblical. We know that that is not what the first, Tim, uh, first Corinthians, uh, uh, what Matthew 18 and then First Corinthians, uh, where it talks about it in chapter 5 and, and Second Corinthians chapter 5, where it talks about it in chapter 11 as well, that that isn't the concept that we're talking about. And so when you think about it, the practical reasons in our society are just so profound why we would do this. Okay, the way we operate here, for anybody who's not interested, we have when people come, they have to sign a doctrinal statement before they join our church, that they would agree to submit to the doctrinal statement. How does that protect us as a church? Okay, for, for membership? Because then when we choose teachers, we choose teachers only from our membership. We have the assurance that the people who are within our membership agree to follow a certain doctrine. So it's just a practical aspect of being able to say, okay, we can, we can be, feel confident that what's being taught is individuals have stated that they agree with it, that they're not teaching something that is contrary to what the church is holding as part of its doctrinal statement because they signed saying they agree with that area. It protects the bodies from threats. Um, somebody was just commenting on it this week, somebody in business, and they were saying that when they go and pick up parts for their equipment, they used to be able to go and it was, you know, like here's the parts counter and here was the warehouse. They used to be able to go in some of the businesses and the parts counter they'd pay for it and they'd say, be careful when you go into the area of the warehouse to pick up the items. And they were commenting, they said, even the, these businesses that have been employed for a long time, that several of them here in our community, they no longer let any of the um, customers step across that line in that warehouse area. Why? insurances, right? Do insurances dictate a lot of what we do? Okay, it's a cultural, it's a cultural phenomena. It's part of our life. Um, do we ever, as church, could we ever be, be threatened with lawsuit? For what? Okay, if somebody physically gets hurt, that's one of the reasons somebody asked this morning, why aren't we allowing the skateboarders to skate out here anymore? Because, okay, we have a liability. Uh, last week, Pastor Allen was telling a couple of kids they have to leave, and they said, and he, they said, well, why can't we skateboard here? He was saying, because if you get injured, you know, we would have a liability because it's on our property, and some of the stunts you do are pretty, you know, uh, and so there could be, and they said, our parents would never sue. Okay. <laughs> My response to that when people say what is, yeah, and this dog never bites, Right? You, you hear people say that. And the dog does what? It bites you. Okay. Um, and so there's that possibility. Where else could we be threatened? Somebody said it. Discrimination? In what way? Okay. Okay. There could be a discrimination factor. Let's build upon that for a second. What is possible in our day and age... What is possible to happen that somebody would cry discrimination more than any, but any other group that, that would like to see churches sink? Okay, the gay rights, the gender issues. Okay, so we come along and we say this. We find out, I'm just going to just randomly just choose. We find out that somebody who's been involved playing instruments 
is all of a sudden publicly broadcasting that they have come to a different position and they now believe and are practicing a same-sex relationship and have a live-in relationship. Okay, we would respond by saying, you know, per the scriptures, this isn't right, this isn't proper, and we would probably end up going through Matthew chapter 18, which is church discipline, where that would put it out. Okay, if that person was really rallying to their cause, could they turn around and sue us for having discriminated against them based on gender? Could that ever happen in the United States? Okay, it, it is an agenda. There is an agenda. Multiple churches have, happened, have had that happen. And so what do we do? What steps have we taken to protect ourselves? We have it this way. You can only, only ones that are participating in dealing with, in that sense of the service, they have to be members. And what do the members have to sign? They sign a statement that they agree to submit to Two things, our doctrinal statement and our constitution. And in our constitution, we have written it that we have defined anymore that when somebody that, that we believe that an individual is of the gender that they were birthed with, and that is the proper gender for their life. And so we have worded it in such a way that if all of a sudden we kicked out Joe Schmo here and we went through the process and they turned around and wanted to sue us, we would have the protection of saying, but you agreed with this statement when you joined and you understood and we, it's spelled out in everything that we gave you ahead of time that this could happen and you agreed to it. I mean, let, let's take it back even from the gate. If we did any type of church discipline, could we become suspect to somebody saying, you're ruining my reputation in the community? Sure. And so how do we protect ourselves? We have a membership, and that membership has that statement, has that they would agree to submit, and so therefore they've, they've signed it. You have, if you're a member. You've signed it 18 years of old. You're supposed to have signed this for a statement. And so we're protecting ourselves. We're also protecting ourselves to be able to say, if you bring your children into our ministries, the people who are dealing with your children, we have some type of checks and balances that we can say we're confident these people are, are reliable people. They have gone through examination, if I can use that term, by filling out... Um, the background checks, thank you. By filling that out, and we can say that. We can say that with our doctrinal uh, teachings, that if somebody visits, visits, that we're confident that our people are teaching uh, a basic orthodox doctrine, and so it protects us, okay, by that simple way, and membership is a, is a really protective way for us to do it, very practical in this day and age. In fact, let, let's be real practical about it. Let's be, not silly, but let's be practical. Should a restaurant allow any customer who would like to get up and go in the back and start cooking the food? No. We would say a restaurant would be foolish to do that. Why? If you were the restaurant owner, why wouldn't you let me... Okay, you're the restaurant owner. And I come in and say, I have a wonderful recipe that your people would like. Let me go back in the kitchen and let me prepare it for these people over here. Why wouldn't you want me to do that? You could, I could ruin your business. Okay, I could bring in more business. I'm a good cook. Okay. Don't, don't, Deb's not here. Okay. Um, is there, okay, what's that? I'm a good judge of food. I'm not going to touch that one. (laughs) 
But does that pose a threat to you? Okay, in business, you and, would you want to go to a restaurant where you don't know who's back there cooking? I mean, you don't anyway. But, but what do you place confidence in? The ownership of the business. When you go to a restaurant, you're assuming the ownership has... They have standards and they're going to do it. And so you expect that of that business. That somebody isn't letting people off the street just to come in and do their thing. But I'm surprised how many times churches are expected to let anybody come in off the street and say, hey, I've got something to share. And we say no. And we've had this happen. People will show up and I've had... It hasn't been for a few years, but a number of years ago, we had several people that showed up at different times just saying, God has given... Oh, you were sharing with me your experience years ago as well, that in a church you were at, somebody showed up and said, I have a message from God for this group this morning, and I want to speak. It, it, it sounds so terrible if you're looking at, you know, from the outside perspective. If you come and say, I got a message from God, I want to speak, and I say, I, I'm not letting you speak. Well, I'm, I'm stifling God. But there is the reality of protecting the body. I don't know you from Adam. I don't know what that message is going to be. And so we wouldn't, we, we wouldn't expect that in a business. But then people say it's okay in a church. Here, let's throw another business. Okay. Do you want to make sure that where you take your car to be fixed, that they have competent people fixing your car? Yes. Okay, as opposed to any, and by the way, if, if when we had a business, we didn't want customers coming in and fixing the car because of liabilities, if there's problems with it. You could do this with your bank, okay? Do you want any other customer in that bank to just go behind the counter and start dealing with your money? Okay, you say no, because you have a confidentiality factor. You have a trust factor. Yeah, you know, and it's like, wait a minute, I don't want anybody, I'm going to say it, you, you, you understand, I didn't want anybody, just anybody teaching my kids. My kids are more, more valuable to me than all these other illustrations we've given. I wanted to make sure that my kids were under competent teachers. Well, one of the value, even when I go and visit other churches, one of the cons- one of the ways to know that is have they screened? Do they? And how do they typically do that? There's a membership process that allows that screening, that protection, and you know, and, and it's like in any area of life. You and I wouldn't like it if our kids were playing on a sports team and all of a sudden, you know, Marlon's youngest. That if let's say Marlon had a child of about you know ten years of age now. God bless you. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, your kids have been at every practice, and they have participated, and all of a sudden, he, his kid shows up, and his kid gets to play the whole thing. It just doesn't seem fair. And so you look at it and say, the idea of contributing to a team, you used that concept before, and participating. Now, most of you understand that, you know that, but this is what we run into a lot, is people just say, well, you know, I'm gifted, and I can... no. Yoke up, commit yourself, get involved, and join into that church. And so a church membership just makes perfect sense as there's indications in scriptures. It helps guarantee the protection. It keeps us safe as a body, provides opportunities and safeguards all the way around. And so it just, and the bottom line is a church has the autonomy and the right to establish whatever they would like. And so if there's churches that say, we don't care about membership, we just let whoever's gifted come in and participate. That, that is their right. I think it's unwise, personally, for the protection of the body, but that's their right. 
And so we have the right to say what we have for membership. And so here, with that in mind, what are the prerequisites for becoming a member in our church? There's just two prerequisites. You've got to be born again. And why do we say those two? Born again and baptized. Acts chapter 2, Then they that gladly received the word were baptized, and then they were added unto the church. So we make those prerequisites. Must one agree 100% with our doctrinal statement? and constitution to become a member. The, the key word is agree. Well, that's what the question is, okay? Okay, 100%. Do they have to agree? Could, let, me, let me rephrase this. Okay, when Dolly came, if Dolly said to me, I don't know if I agree that once saved, always saved. I come from a church that, Dolly would have said to me, I come from a church that they, they could lose their salvation. But I'm not sure. Could she still become a member? We don't say you have to agree. That statement doesn't, and I said before you have to agree. But the wording on the statement is this. Do you agree to submit to? Okay. And we phrased it that way for this reason. What happens if somebody comes and they aren't certain? Okay. What happens if somebody comes and they say, well, I'm not of that particular persuasion that, um, uh, I'm going to go back years ago. Years ago, our Constitution said we'll only use the King James. We, we don't have that in our Constitution anymore. Um, we have it to the discretion of the leadership. And somebody back then said, I don't know if I, 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 can't, I want to use an NIV. Okay. But, when, if, but they agreed to teach from the choice of the version, but they wanted to use the NIV in their personal study. Could they still become a member? Oh, they did, and a lot of people did. Yeah, and, and it's not that they have to agree 100%. We've had people here that have become members who didn't agree with our stance on tongues. But what they agreed to was to submit to that, and therefore what couldn't or wouldn't they have done to teach contrary. Okay? And I am perfectly, 100% content with that, that if, those, if some individual has a different position on several things, Okay. When exactly is the rapture? I think it's pre-trib. I'm absolutely convinced of that. If somebody came and said, well, I'm kind of leaning towards mid-trib, you can still become a member. They can become a member as long as they're not going to make it a disruptive doctrinal discussion within the body. Make sense? Okay. And so that agreeing and saying, to join the church, we just have, some churches, they do attendance, they do, um, we had... At the, uh, at the reenactment. I laugh because I, yeah, I shouldn't laugh because different cultures of churches. We had some people ask us, okay, is this your membership drive? The reenactment. Because some churches do that, yes? I, I've never been in one, but I understand some churches do that where they do community events and then basically whatever you sign at the end, you become a member. Okay, and uh, so different culture, different things. Some churches you, you join by a letter or a transfer, or if you just meet with the leadership of the church, or you take a class. A lot of you have been in churches in the past that they had a, uh, a membership class that you had to go through before you could become a member. And so we, we just, and again, every church has its own autonomy. For us, it's just a matter of, okay, 
Some of those things are, you understand, but we're trying to keep it as simple as possible. If you're saved, you're born again, and you have a testimony, share that testimony with the church body, and the church body votes you in, so be it. Uh, and so that's how we do our membership. What are some good reasons for leaving a church? We're, we're talking about building a church. Let me flip this. Why should people leave a church? Okay, let, let's, let's, t- let's state the reasons most people leave a church. Disagreement with doctrine? Yeah. Okay. Disagreement with people? What's that? Moving out of the area. Okay. That's a good reason to leave, by the way. Okay. Okay. You're giving some good reasons. Okay. Do some people leave over dumb reasons? Okay. Okay. Could dumb reasons be because... The pastor speaks too fast. Seriously, could that be could that be a problem for some people? I, I, and I'm not. I'm, I'm, I use that as a silly illustration. It's really not. Could somebody say, "I have a struggle here at this church because he speaks so fast, I can't keep up, and I'm not getting anything out of it." Okay, would that be a legitimate reason for them to go elsewhere? Yeah, yeah I, I really think so. I think so. Because one of the things you, you go to church for is you want to be, you want to be fed, and if you can't get something, and it's and it's some things that are, but when people leave a church over something like, um, you know, I didn't I didn't like somebody didn't talk to me or somebody you know I didn't like the you know you list all kinds of things that that are you know I didn't like the way that you know. They, I, I like different type of, of lights in the building. Or I like, we've had some people visit that never came after I met with them. They didn't come back because we don't have any stained glass. Okay. Well, this building wasn't designed to be of that traditional orthodox. And for them, worship involved stained glass. Okay. Okay. Some good reasons to leave. Location. I mean, seriously, if you moved or the church moved... Okay, uh, limited ministries and changes of life. What I mean by that is this, is all of a sudden, if you are now a parent, what are some of the concerns you have for your church providing? Nursery? Kids get a little bit older? Is there a children's ministry? Is there something to help them out? Okay, and some, sometimes that changes. Um, obviously, moral, doctrinal corruption within the church, that is primary. Uh, failure to teach or to evangelize. I would leave a church in a heartbeat if there was no evangelistic thrust. Because if, if they're not interested in winning souls, if they're, if they're interested in only being us and no more, something is seriously wrong with that church. Um, inability to grow. Here, here's one, and I tell people this frequently. Um, if you don't feel like you could bring your lost friends to the church service, where they would hear the gospel, or if goofy things are happening that you would be embarrassed about, it's time to leave that church. Because if you can't bring your lost friends to church with you, yeah, that's supposed to be one of the things you're supposed to be actively involved in. And so that to me is a critical factor. How do you leave a church? We talked about joining, but how should you leave a church? If there's a problem, what should you do? Shouldn't you go to the, go to the leadership? and say we've got a problem with the hope and expectation that it gets resolved or corrected. 
Okay, that, that, that would seem to be the reasonable thing to do uh, in the sense of letting them know. Um, and even if you leave, for whatever reasons, I, I, we advocate when I sit and talk with people and say, okay, why, why is it that you're leaving? And if they tell me why, okay, then you know, sometimes people will say, I'm not going to tell you. I'm just not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. <clears throat> that is really difficult because then you're walking away and going, let me rephrase. Let me, let me put it this way. Let me flip this over. You and your spouse, they're not talking to you for the whole day. And you go to them and say, what's wrong? What's wrong? And they say, nothing. But they still don't talk to you. What do you start thinking? Well, something's wrong. Who do you start looking at? What did I do? When you become paranoid? over what you've done. So when I go and sit with people and they say, well, we're not going to tell you. We're not going to tell you. It's like, did I comb my tuft wrong? Did I, did, what did I do? And so that's just human nature we do it. Okay? And so oftentimes when I have the conversation that somebody is leaving, I, I tell them this. When you leave, we're not gonna, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to discuss your departure with other people because I don't know if God will lead you back. And I don't want you to feel like You've been embarrassed or you've been belittled. My church where, where we got saved years ago. We get saved and we were growing in the Lord. And all of a sudden this church started going into terrible problems under new leadership. And it was, it was just the management was horrible in the church. And they were losing their, their goal, their vision. And so people started leaving. Frequently, frequently, they would be stated from the pulpit, you know, uh, just to let you know, the talents have left, and so if you see them, you should rebuke them and let them know that they've got a bad attitude. You know, and there was the belittling by naming people from the pulpit. Okay, if that happens, I'm, I'm going to guess this, Jim. If you ever wanted to go back to that church, would you hesitate because of what the people were told about you? I would think so. So if we burn the bridges, there's no opportunity to minister together in the future. So I shouldn't be saying anything with names or belittling anybody in any private conversations or whatever. You know, sometimes you ask and it's just like you have, a comment to you is, I don't know, or you have to ask them. Because I don't think it's my place to discuss it with in general. And I want to keep the doors open for those individuals. If there's a problem, speak to the leadership. If there's no change, let them know you're leaving. But when you leave, don't campaign for others to go. Okay, leave quietly. In fact, when we sit and talk, and I hope our, all of our staff does the same thing, when we sit and talk, and if I'm going to sit and talk with Kevin and Sandy and saying, okay, you're visiting our church, you know, you're coming, and if they've been hurt or they've had a problem, the tendency is they want to tell me what's wrong with the previous church. And they want to say those things. I don't need to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Okay? I understand that they're hurting. I want to minister to. But what happened in that other church is really none of my business. And so frequently when we have those conversations, it's like, well, okay, whatever happened, and we try to get off of that and off target so that uh, we get a sense that there's some hurting, but we want to be able to help. But I don't need to hear other churches' dirty laundry. That just doesn't do anybody any good to let somebody vent. And by the way, 
if Kevin and Sandy, they did not do this, but if Kevin and Sandy come and they're really bitter and angry over the hurts, for them to heal, what do you have to do biblically? You have to go back and resolve the hurts. Or at least confess it, at least go to them. And you may not end up worshiping there long term, but I have no business fostering their anger towards other people. And uh, even though I might want them to come into our church, and they're good people, and we can add them to our church, it's wrong for us to say, yeah, 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 the bad church, bad church, we're better than them. And it doesn't help them in, the, in their spiritual walk. So well, all those things together, let's talk a little bit more about organization, the government. Talking about uh, God doing everything decently and in order, we go on. Let's, uh, let's talk about, now we, we understand this church rule, okay? What, if you're visiting with us and you say, what, what do you mean by that? We are an independent church. Who sends us our pastors? Who assigns them? We do. We do. Okay. Who decides how long I can stay here as the pastor? The congregation does. Okay. Um, and, and we all understand. You know, God does. Okay. And I don't mean to diminish that, but we're talking on a human level. Um, who decides our officers? Who decides our budget? Who decides what missionaries we have to support? Okay. Is there a beauty to independence? Absolutely. The beauty is that if we were within a big, big group of, of convention of 100 churches, could there be some missionaries that we didn't like their ministry but we still had to contribute to? Yes. yes. And so we get, could, if they were going to assign us a pastor, could we get stuck, stuck with some real yin-yang? Some of you are saying we already are. Okay. Uh, could we end up having to contribute to things we don't want to contribute to? Right. Okay. And so the independence is really, really sweet. There was no hierarchical system. What that means is um, terminology. In most churches, you have your pastors, and then above them, you have your bishops, and then you have a growing level of authority. That's a hierarchy. We don't believe in any type of biblical hierarchy. Um, those terms used for pastors, bishops, they're all the same thing. And then above them is basically... The pastor is over the congregation, but the congregation's over a pastor. It's a very unique relationship. Congregation rule, pastor led, and above us is Jesus Christ. Okay. And so it's a very simple system, and we're autonomous. That means, as autonomous, we make our own decisions. And we can support that biblically by going, okay, Acts chapter 6, the care of the needy. Nobody tells us who we have to contribute to to help care for the needy. If we want to, we could give money to local groups that are doing food banks. If we wanted to, we could be just doing it ourselves. If we wanted to, we could contribute to some overseas type of ministry that's helping out brothers and sisters. But the idea is we take care of our own, in particular, and we choose our own leadership. Like they did, who's going to oversee the care of the widows? They chose the deacons. We can jump to other passages, like this one that would indicate, okay, the congregation is choosing, but under the direction, the guidance of the pastors making recommendations. Here, in Acts 14, uh, where it talks about ordaining the leadership. The word ordain literally means to raise the hand, like a voting situation. And so the passages, after they started the churches, they come around and they elect their leaders. In Acts 15, you have in throughout the this passage, a multiple number of people that gathered. They're talking about what are we going to do with a certain group within our church? How are we going to minister? Interesting to just walk through the passage. Who was involved? It talks about the apostles and elders coming together. It talks about a multitude that is hearing Paul and Barnabas. So it's more than just the leadership. 
It's the multitude of the people involved. It talks then about Pastor James standing up and he's saying, hear me, let me make this recommendation. He uses that firm, that word that he's giving them recommendation of what to do based on some scriptural principles. And then it says, the apostles, the elders, and the church, the whole church agreed at, together with what his recommendation was and they moved forward. And so in their business meeting, there was everybody involved Leadership was making recommendations, but the body as a whole made the final decision. I think that's a wonderful pattern for us to follow. I don't think it's wonderful for us to follow a pattern that says, okay, let's just get together and here as a group, okay, let's do this. Our next, our next deacons meeting, let's not have deacons meeting, but let's just do a meeting with everybody in church and let's talk about what we're going to do. Um, should we or shouldn't we paint the foyer? And what color should we paint it? Okay? What could a conversation that involves everybody in this room, what could that become? <laughs> None of you are speaking positive about one another. Okay. <laughs> could we all have opinions? Okay. And could sometimes we get over energetic about our opinions? Yes. And could we get, could we create division that's unnecessary? Okay, so in management, it's like, okay, let's have, let's have some recommendations come. And, let's, and yes, we should do the research, and yes, you know, but, but some of this is just like, okay, let's, let's not create confusion. Let's do decently in order. So with, within leadership, you come. Acts 15, make a recommendation. And it's not a power play of who's in charge. It's following Acts 15. That the leadership made a recommendation with discussion by the body. Being able to discuss and, and talk about it. And then they came to a conclusion. I believe it's our biblical responsibility with leadership in the church to do research, to f check out scriptures or whatever, and make recommendations based on this text. So that's why we do what we do in that regard. In 1 Corinthians 5, uh, disciplining of church members, they took care of their own. They handled those matters themselves. In 1 Timothy 5, if you have a, uh, a pastor in this text, you have a pastor who wasn't doing his job, he talks about, okay, you deal with it, you bring accusations be with, uh, with two or more, and so you deal with that yourself instead of others from outside. 1 Corinthians 6, uh, he even says this, if you have business difficulties that are causing division, that all of a sudden there's somebody in business is suing one another. Let the church appoint some people to, who are wise and to discern over that matter. And so he left it within the local church helping them out. Determining how often we do communion. Qualifications for pastors and deacons. It was laid out for the whole church. Therefore, if you are all to be made aware of what the qualifications are... The idea obviously has to be, you're making some decision here. And so we have all these texts that go together that, the, in fact, the local church was supposed to take care of its own leadership, count the, uh, count the labor you know, worthy, of, um, worthy of his due, uh, double honor to those who are faithful in pastoring. So you have all these different things. Now, we get down to officers. In the Bible... There are, as I understand scripture, there's two officers in a local church. We have more. Okay? But the, what are the two biblical offices? Pastors. Okay, what other officers do we have? We have a treasurer, an assistant treasurer. Okay? We have a secretary. Okay? Are those biblical offices? 
The answer is no. Are they anti-biblical offices? In other words, do we do wrong by having a treasurer and assistant treasurer? No, but we would do wrong. Here's, here's where it gets... If the pastors and deacons abdicate their responsibilities and put them on somebody else, they abdicate those, those responsibilities and say, too hard, we'll give it to so-and-so. Then does it become a matter of an issue. I think then that's a biblical issue. But if we have officers that are basically helping to maintain an operation decently and in order, and I bet you, I bet you the way we do finances today is a little bit different than what they did in Bible days. Do you think? I think so. I think so. And I think, I think reasons why. Any of you have offering envelopes with you this morning? You don't have to hold them up. But do you have offering envelopes? Okay. Do you think they used offering envelopes with numbers back in the New Testament era? Why not? They, you didn't have... Why do we use... You know, let's be honest about it. Why do we do offering envelopes? It's, it's a tax deductible, deductible situation. It's our culture. Okay? Did they have that option in, in Bible days? No. But is it wrong for us to use that? Why do, why do we have a treasurer? Because it's, it really provides a checks and balance in a practical way. That doesn't violate any scripture. And I bet you, I bet you in the New Testament, they didn't have the same checking type accounts that we do. I bet you that they didn't have the same standards for auditing that we do today. I bet you it was a different culture. I bet you they didn't even do incorporation like we do today. Okay. Why do we do incorporation? Do you know, you know what? Here, okay. Um, we've had some who, who have, and it happens, it happens on a continuous basis. We are wrong, the comment is made, because we incorporate. Once we incorporate and do a legal document, the government controls what we preach and believe. Not, oh, that's good, good. It's not yet. That's not true. That is just not true. If it becomes true, then what do we do? Yeah, then we give up our incorporation. Okay. But all incorporation does, it's a legal way of protecting, somebody said it over here, we protect the individuals. In fact, we're able to buy property because we are incorporated. And even though some of us sign those documents, okay, when we purchase property, when we did mortgages, those individuals who signed those documents, it wasn't their property because we're we're incorporated. It's our property. So even though I might have signed documents of some sort, I couldn't come along and say afterwards, um, by the way, church, I now own this building, and you will do what I want. Does that ever happen? Yes. Yes. And so incorporation protects who? All of us. Oh, by the way, those who do sign those documents... If we would have failed to fulfill our payments, who would they come after? The entire church. The entire church is susceptible. It wouldn't be, okay, it wouldn't be me or whoever Jonathan's their chairman right now. It wouldn't be, okay, Jonathan, church, church took out a mortgage. Jonathan, you signed it, therefore you owe $1.5 million. 
and Jonathan wouldn't have to turn to Lisa and say, Lisa, write out a check. Okay, um, that, that wouldn't be the case. And Lisa would faint. Um, because if we default, because we're incorporated, who do they come back to? It's the body. It's, the, it's a legal arrangement that protects everyone on a, on a broad basis. And we don't give up any of our rights. And, by the way, it allows us, by filling out those forms, to be able to give tax-deductible receipts. Okay, this is me personally. If the government says um, we're no longer going to allow tax deductions based on giving, that's okay. That's okay. We're still going to give to the Lord. But it's a benefit they give us right now, so we take advantage we follow the procedures. If the government says only way you're going to keep that is you have to stop, I'll give you in, in, a, in a country, you cannot preach. Uh, this, is in, this is in China. The, those churches that are recognized and are government um, certified or approved, they cannot preach the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation. And they're not allowed to. Okay, if they said that here, what would we do with our tax status? We'd give, give it up. Give it up. Okay. But right now, it doesn't, it doesn't cause us a problem. And so there are certain things we do as a church that we function and we operate because they're practical, they're beneficial. But the one things we must have are certain officers that are given in Scripture. The two officers are pastors and deacons. And when we start talking about what they are, we want to start with pastors and pick on them the most. And what do we know about these guys? Well, there's given multiple titles for them. Okay, there's, anybody know what the different titles are in Scriptures? Shepherd is one. Elder is one. Bishop is one. What'd you say? Teacher is one. Overseer is is one of the definitions of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you've covered most all of them. If I'm kept up with you, okay. There's five different titles, and then there's subtitles to them. Those five. And now the question has come: Why does God give five different titles to the pastor? It helps define his job. It helps say, says what he's supposed to do. And so it behooves us to say, okay, why do we do what we do? Um, I'll, I'll throw one out. This, this is a very legitimate one. Why in business meetings and why in our Constitution am I the moderator and not somebody else? And it's not because I, I was involved in writing the Constitution. It's because of one of the titles. One of the titles is Moderator. In, in, its, in its original meeting and understanding. So we do that, and we, we operate because that's a title that is given. Um, there's a title that you missed. Reverend. What? It's not there? What'd you say? Lou, Lou you, you preached a number of years. Did you ever go by Reverend? The extremely very Reverend. You, that's what you went by. The extremely very reverent. His greatest quality, humility. <laughs> did, you ever, did you ever use the title reverend? Were you, were you allowed to? You were ordained. Okay. And so people will call you reverend at times. When you do funerals, they might publish reverend. But you never wanted that title? Why not? Besides, besides having your wife call you that, what are we on? Just some study lights like the idea of a shepherd, a pastor, leader. It felt more, it feels more comfortable. And I don't like the title reverend. It, it's what it is in our society, it goes with ordination. It's a title that, that indicates you were ordained. 
I've never cared for it the same of you. It's just because it feels like I am putting myself up here. And just like, eh, eh. And quite frankly, I don't feel like I need deserve to be reverent, and I don't feel holy the way I should. And so, pastor seems to me more intimate and more personal. And I, it's just, to me, it's a sweet, sweet, sweet title that we can use.